This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our ongoing conversation to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you today from my home office where we're reaching out while staying in. You can catch new episodes of Women at Work on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time and join in the conversation by following us on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. We want to hear from you always, although especially in regard to today's show. The country has exploded with rage, pain, and a desperate cry to try to address the systemic racism reflected in the senseless deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and now Rayshard Brooks. While the criminal justice system is the centerpiece of the national discussion for good reason, it's by no means the only place where change is overdue. The corporate workplace is fundamentally shaped by the degree to which diversity and inclusion does or does not thrive, and the degree to which bias and racism is honestly and effectively addressed. Fortunately, the Supreme Court just ruled that the language of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits sex discrimination, applies to discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. But in a world where we're afraid to talk about race, often unaware of our own biases, and pressed to justify DNI efforts in purely financial terms, it's hard sometimes to see how to make more meaningful progress in our immediate environment. But thanks to the work of today's guests, we have new insights into ways that our own workplaces can evolve. Stephanie Creary is an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School. She conducts research on topics of identity, diversity and inclusion, and relationships across differences. She also advises corporate audiences on how to foster allyship and sponsorship behavior, improve leader engagement and diversity, equity and inclusion work, reduce bias in selection processes, and facilitate conversations like the ones we're going to have today about challenging diversity topics, including racial and gender inequality in the workplace. Stephanie is also an affiliated member of Wharton People Analytics, where she's worked with a select group of students in our Mo Foundation Applied Insights Lab on the research behind a new report titled titled Evidence-Based Solutions for Inclusion in the Workplace, Actions for Middle Managers, which is just one of many things we'll talk about today. So Stephanie, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me on the show, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. You know, I look forward to talking about this report and your work for so long. Ever since we started, it was just an idea a few years ago. But I want to start in with something that I think is much more important right now, which is you. How are you? as a black woman who's also a professor and expert on the very issues we're grappling with. How are you? What's going on? So Laura, I, I think that at best I can say I, I'm hanging in there. Um, if there was ever a time to have simultaneous and mixed emotions about what's happening in our country and the world, I think for me that time is now. So I would say if I had to put it into words, I am simultaneously exhausted <laughs> and energized and hopeful. Um, and I've never quite felt like this before. And I think even though many days I would like to lay down and take a nap, um, I see that the work that I've been doing with my team um, is ever more needed now. So I just, I keep going. I do take some time out, but it, it does really feel important for me right now to push out the ideas. I'm so glad to hear that and grateful for everything you're doing. I know you've been in such high demand with your students, the press, your colleagues, me. 
trying to help us all understand what's happened, how we can step into this moment. Um, so thank you for your resilience and your energy here. Um, but what I want to make sure that we're doing is figuring out how we can talk about this without furthering the burden on you. So as we go through this conversation, will you help educate me where I need to rein back in? Oh, absolutely. I think it's certainly the time for me now is, is not to check out. The time is to educate. But that's also the message that I'm putting out there into the world is, is we don't all know where we need to be right now. We all don't know what we need to be doing. And so I try to help in little ways, even if that is to refer you to the next person who potentially might have a bit more energy than I have. Fair enough. So one of the things that hit me as I was thinking about what's going on all around us, and also as I was reading things you've written, heard the things you've been talking about on NPR, is the concept of being colorblind. And I realized I grew up in a community and in an era where that's what we were I would say aspiring towards, it never felt like that was real. And so I was wondering if you could help, help us understand what do we gain and lose when we try and make race invisible and or when we make it hyper visible? Well, I will say I too grew up in an era where we used language such as colorblindness to articulate the, the inspired way we wanted to treat other people. Um, and that was really hard as a black person growing up when in some cases, people would say they didn't see my race. And in other cases, they would say, I see your race. Because I think the reality is, is whether or not people want to admit, uh, I have a racialized experience, as do other people who are black and brown. And so as I think about scientifically, this, these insights around colorblindness, it's actually been posited oftentimes as colorblindness versus multiculturalism. What is it that uh, people's preferences are? And, and clearly what we see are people who are black and brown tend to prefer a conversation about multiculturalism, where we recognize as the unique experiences that individuals have based on their color or their race. And individuals who are white tend to prefer a colorblindness um, uh, dialogue. And we see that there are different outcomes for individuals based on whether or not those preferences are, are met. So if you are white and there's a lot of uh, multiculturalism rhetoric being had, uh, the negative effects uh, might be stronger for you. And for people who are black or brown, a conversation around colorblindness might have negative effects. So where we are as a society is we're trying to understand how do we take the ideas that we all have different preferences based on how we grew up, what we were raised with, and channel that into something that's productive in the workplace and in our various settings in which we work and live, but also something that allows us to create equity. Um, and so there is there is a middle ground here. I think certainly uh, pretending that people's experiences don't differ based on their race is, is kind of crazy. Right. Uh, I said kind of, but I mean really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think seeing everything that happens through the lens of race and racism um, can be unhealthy as well. So we're trying to find that space of where we can acknowledge that race and racism are real things and they do affect our experiences, but we're also trying to um, look at people as having more than a race. I also have a gender, I have <laughs> yes. a sexual orientation, and those things affect experiences as well. So just to reflect back, it, it feels like it's, um, if we try and do it as an ideal, 
part of the problem is that we're denying our very real lived experiences and the things that make us who we are. Just as it's insane to say we work in a genderless workplace, how could we be you know, colorblind? And that we also don't want to always be focused only on one aspect of our identity and how we interact with other people. Is that a fair way of translating it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much in the past few years, we've, we've raised attention to Kimberly Crenshaw's topic or conversation or concept called intersectionality. And, you know, Laura, you and I both identify as women and you uh, identify as a white woman and I identify as a black woman. You also identify with a religion that is very different from the religion that I identify with. And those multitude of experiences in the historical and political context in which all of those multiple identities are rooted, that makes for a different workplace experience for you and for me. So whereas race right now is this aspect of my identity and perhaps your identity that's really salient, um, I can't pretend that my experience is the same as a black man's experience, right? Of it's, course it's, it's a completely different experience in the world. And so in talking about our multiple identities, it becomes really important to acknowledge that as well. And But another thing that we're learning, or I think that we're finally admitting is that it's hard to talk about race. It scares people into silence sometimes, um, just at the moments when we really need to move past it. How can we do that together and make safe places to have the kinds of conversations that are so desperately overdue? So I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I've actually written about it. Um, I actually just today uh, authored two pieces that are versions of one another. One is for Knowledge at Wharton, and it's about how do we begin talking about race, and it's, it's targeted toward a middle manager audience. And the other piece is about talking about race in classrooms, um, and that's targeted toward educators, and that's for Harvard Business Publishing Education. Uh, and so one of the things that I've learned, I've been at the Wharton School for three years as a faculty member, and I teach the diversity course, and I have lots of different students who want a lot of things. And race is really the most complicated topic. I actually do not, although I mention race and gender and sexual orientation, I, I constantly try to give voice to these different identities. We don't have a real deep 80 minute long conversation about race, race until about week five of my seven week course, because I really feel that the students are, they struggle with it. And I, and I, I do understand that as a black woman talking about diversity in the context of a classroom, but also talking about race, it also uh, sensitizes people a little bit more to being careful around their words. So long story short, I have this framework called race, um, which really is about preparing oneself to have these conversations. Because we often, we often think about, let's just dive in and talk about it. Um, my advice is let's just step back and think about how we're going to do this before we actually jump into the nitty gritty, because it really is complicated. It brings up a lot for people who are black, who are brown and who are white in this country. People are afraid of talking about slavery um, and civil rights movements. And so those are the things that they, they're going to have to confront and they've probably never done that in a mixed audience. So in your pacing of this with your class was part of what you accomplished over five weeks was building trust and rapport and a shared vocabulary? Absolutely. I mean, the first day of class, we set norms around how we're going to have conversations about our differences. And I don't impose those norms on the students. They generate them themselves. And over time, that's morphed into students saying, okay, so what I mean is when I say that I want a safe space, I want you to know that if I say something that says sounds off the mark, that it might not be coming from a deep, dark place. So as opposed to telling me I'm a racist, can you just 
ask me what I meant by what I said, and perhaps I can clarify. So we do that on the first day of class because I have realized in countless other contexts I've been in, especially business environments, if you don't have some uh, give some space for people to at least say what their expectations are. Never mind. I can't promise that we're all going to uphold all these norms, but if they don't get to at least say what they're afraid of, the conversation will go downhill very quickly. So yes, we have to build that space, but we also have to say what that space looks like for us. Okay, so I want to um, unpack that a little bit for people for whom this concept of norms in a group setting may be new vocabulary on its own. Um, and I'm going to use a kind of parallel experience. I have a 17-year-old daughter. We were at loggerheads about something. We kept winding up at loggerheads. And then we realized that what we were fighting about were the words that we were using and not the ideas behind them. Right. And so we learned to pause and say, when you say this word, it makes me think of X. If... Um, can we pause for a minute and can I confirm, is that what you mean or is this a holding place for another idea? And it wound up that we stopped fighting and moved much more collaboratively into problem solving together. Is that the kind of norm that you're talking about? Yes. And I think another one that goes along with that is this notion of how can we begin to critique the idea, critique the idea and critique the argument as opposed to the person that mm. comes up year over year with the students. This is Let's not look at individuals as being bad people initially. You know, maybe we'll end up there and you'll decide that that person is just a horrible human. But at first, let's sort of give the benefit of the doubt and create, critique the idea before we start attributing um, negative sentiments to people as humans. My guest today is Wharton professor Stephanie Creary, and we're discussing a recent report that she put out from Wharton People Analytics, I'm proud to say, um, called Evidence-Based Solutions for Inclusion in the Workplace, a joint project with Diversity, Inc., on how we can work within our organizations to improve diversity and inclusion. So, Steph, with that in mind, um, talk to me a little bit, um, or actually to our listeners, because I know how the report began, about how the report was, um, what it came from, what the process was, and who was involved. Okay, so I guess I'll be transparent and say, and date myself, and say that I've been doing both applied research and academic research on diversity and inclusion for 14 years. That means I've had 14 years to be frustrated, but also to be optimistic <laughs> about what's in front of us. And it seems to me that every time that there is some sort of disruption in workplaces or on the news, um, companies tend to sort of reinvent the wheel, uh, media person tend to ask, does diversity training really work? There's all this questioning around what we should be doing. Should you be putting company statements out there? And so for me, uh, two years ago, I was really in a place of wanting to understand of the myriad of factors, the myriad of practices that companies are engaging around diversity and in diversity inclusion, what works. And I say that because I knew just from my own experience that many companies have in their uh, inventory hundreds of activities that they're doing to manage diversity and inclusion. But if you ask them, what do those things do? Many are hard pressed. To, tell, to answer that question. And so that's what we set out to do two years ago was to not only understand what are companies doing, how do we make sense of them, but what on a granular level outcomes can we expect or at least uh, hypothesize would be an outcome of doing such programs. So Steph, when you started to realize that there was um, value in exploring this, was the lack of reporting on outcomes because people weren't assessing them or they didn't know how to measure them and report on them? 
or that so, the conversation was being oversimplified? Two things. One is, I would say, even as I talk to companies now about our current context, there's always a rush to do something, right? There's a rush to put out a statement. There's a rush to have a town hall. There's a rush to create a mentoring program without thinking about the intended outcome, right? So there's a disconnect between what we're doing and what we are thinking it will, what, what will happen. And you know, that's very different from evidence-based practice. That's different mm -hmm. from what doctors do. They, they, they don't necessarily just create a whole bunch of medicine and say, okay, we'll just decide one day we'll, we'll use this one. It's, it's targeted toward a specific ailment. And as we've been talking about this study with leaders, we've been talking about diversity practices as being medicine that we don't often know what they treat. Um, so that's part of the, the issue. The other part is, well, it's related. So if you don't know what you are trying to solve, the problem you are trying to solve, it is very hard to come up with a metric, right? It's very hard to attribute a metric. So when you ask diversity leaders or company leaders, what do you think that mentoring program will do? What do you think that company statement will do? And they say, I don't know, or I hope it just does something that really gives you a good, clear understanding of not of, of the lack of robustness of having metrics with which to measure and also report whether or not anything is working. So let me ask the cynical question. Is that because these efforts are um, done as optics and they're meant to send a signal that we care even if we're not really following through on it? Or is it that um, it's so complicated that the people who are responsible for them um, don't really know um, what their goals should be and they're not integrated in organizational goals the way, say, sales are. Yeah, you can absolutely be cynical and say that there is a cadre of organizations that are imitating what other people are doing and they are doing it because it is what you were supposed to do. And that's what businesses do in general when it comes to most every practice. So that is not going to be any different. But there is a whole host of, there are a whole host of companies. Um, our, our research partner on this is Diversity Inc. And every year they look at companies' practices, they look at uh, a lot of their data to uh, ascertain uh, how much they're actually doing to manage diversity and inclusion. So I'm gonna talk about those companies. In those companies, so let's call them the companies that are doing the most, right? The companies that are doing the most um, the reality is, is that oftentimes the people who are leading these efforts, they're, they're superstars at creating programs. They're superstars at creating experiences where people feel good, but the analytical side of the work is perhaps not what they've been trained in doing, right? Now, I will say at the same time, and Laura, you can attest to this, there's been this advent and all this energy in the last five to 10 years around people analytics. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where all of the people who care about analytics are, but guess what? They don't have the same subject matter expertise. They don't know about the programs, they don't know about the issues, and these groups, the diversity and inclusion group and the analytics group, they're often doing different things. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's part of why many companies are still struggling to understand what are their diversity and inclusion policies actually doing. So in essence, the real opportunity and challenge here is how do we bring people analytics to the effort of diversity and inclusion? Because it's not all one or the other. There's a huge cultural component, um, an interpersonal component of DNI work, but the people analytics is the thing that allows us to set the goals and measure it and assess progress. 
Right. And in the course of doing this study and getting on company calls and, and trying to recruit companies for our study, we've seen uh, that some companies have a closer and a stronger relationship. Some DNI leaders have a closer and stronger relationship with, with the person who runs the engagement survey, for example, because the person who runs the employee engagement survey is often the person with the PhD and who has the most deep level expertise on surveying and, and analytics and statistics. Uh, so that is happening in some companies, but I think like anything, we all become specialists, right? And sometimes being a specialist can be a bit tricky because you get, so with analytics experts, statisticians, is they care so much about the metrics and the science of it that they might forget, right, what we're really trying to accomplish at the end. So you can't just analyze data just to analyze data. You have to have a question. And you're also trying to solve a problem. And guess what? There are people's uh, work lives and, and their experiences that are at stake. So it's, it does take, and I believe it will take each group, the diversity group and the analytics groups, really trying to have at least a basic understanding and appreciation for what skills and expertise the other, the other brings to the table. So, Steph, in your work with these companies where you found that you, you know, there's, these are the companies that have sincere DNI efforts that are mobilized, where they're trying to make real progress, and that you see the need to connect it with the assessment piece, the measurement piece. Where does quantitative work versus qualitative work come in, especially given that you're often dealing with what we would call small sample sizes? Right. So when we first started off this study two years ago, we actually started qualitatively. And I will tell you that my training and my passion is in qualitative research, um, but I have a deep, exp deep expertise and understanding of quantitative research as well. So I, so I use mixed methods, um, but I usually often start qualitatively. And so the first year of our study, we sat down uh, not figuratively, <laughs> figuratively with 16 leaders from 16 different companies across eight to nine industries to talk to them around what they were doing. Because it's really hard to de design a survey around what works when it comes to diversity and inclusion practices. A, if you don't know what the practices are, and B, if you don't understand what, if any, outcomes are they typically assessing. So we spent a lot of time for this project uh, in the qualitative space before we moved on to the quantitative space, because and that allows us to answer different questions. With respect to understanding the experiences of specific demographic groups, this is where the qualitative versus the quantitative really becomes important. Um, so Maxine Williams, as you remember, who is the Chief Diversity Officer at Facebook, came to the Warrant People Analytics Conference a few years ago and talked about uh, the fact that sometimes it's easy to dismiss the experiences of people who are in the minority because our statistics can't pick up on their experiences because you need a large sample size or relatively large sample size in order to, for the results to pan out um, and to make sense statistically. And so having qualitative data um, often allows us to ask the questions that we might otherwise not be paying attention to or wanting to ask if we were only looking at the stats. For this particular study, as we've talked to companies and we're asking all these companies to, to participate to, to help us recruit a minimum of a thousand employees from their company. And we've talked to them about the fact that 
we want minimally to understand experiences by race and minimally to understand experiences by gender. And we will continue to ask about other demographic categories as we are able to, as their legal departments allow us to. But what we've said to them is, is if you want to know about any one group, let's say black women, right? Um, which is often usually a small uh, group, num this in numbers wise in any corporation in America, we need somewhere between 150 and 200 people from that group for the stats to pan out. Now we all know from all of the qualitative data that's out there that black women's experiences are typically uh, very different from their mm -hmm. peers. Um, so in some companies we assess, we might not be able to talk about black women. What we're hoping is that uh, by looking at the five to 10 companies that we're hoping to target, we can look at black women across. So that's another way to sample is, is to not think just about people who are in small numbers categories within a single organization, but to now look at their experiences across a, a bunch of different organizations. And so you see lots of companies trying that strategy as well. So by recognizing where you need essential information, but have a small population, if you band together across the companies, you can learn together in a way yeah. that that will give you real meaningful insights, despite what would be a small sample size within the, a single company. Right, and that's what the McKinsey and Lean and Women in the Workplace report does, right? Is it samples women, uh, the experiences of people, but certainly reports out on women across a bunch of different firms. Um, but it has given us quite compelling insights into the experiences of black women because it's not looking at a single firm. It's looking at a bunch of different firms and, and black women across different levels of, of experience. And so those studies are absolutely necessary if we want to understand the experiences by demographic group. So Steph, talk to me about this concept of middle managers. In, in one of your writings, um, I saw you use the term the frozen middle. Yes. Why are middle managers, A, that frozen middle, and why are they so important? So the term frozen middle is not mine. It's actually a term that came out of the qualitative research that kicked off this project. So if there were two things that we heard um, in the course of asking the questions that we wanted answers to, including what diversity inclusion practices are you doing and how are you measuring it? Um, there was a lot of feedback on, uh, on people who were in the middle, uh, managers who were not at the top of the organization nor were they frontline employees and them as being vital uh, to executing all of these big aspirational initiatives that are created um, in organizations today. But no matter what organizations feel like they are saying, uh, middle managers aren't adopting <laughs> these initiatives with the same fervor that senior managers are. And so what we believe this requires, and, and certainly is how we're targeting the practical implications of our work for the companies that are participating and certainly for the public is to talk about what works, but to also talk about how do we help to provide middle managers who are the executors of all great things that companies decide to do, how do we provide them with the skills, the tools, and the resources in order to take these rather abstract ideas into day-to-day -day practice? And so that's been the, the motivation for this work and certainly where we've invested a lot of resources in coming up with these actionable strategies for middle managers who often don't understand their place in this work and it often feels like extra work as opposed to part of their quote unquote real job as many often describe it. So let's start with the idea of, so you've got these middle managers who may not be on board, 
They may not understand what these initiatives are supposed to accomplish, how they unfold, what their role in is, is in it. They may see it as whether it's window dressing or some abstract statement that came from, you know, the upper echelons of the company. How do we start motivating them and getting them to see the value of it even before they take action on it? So as I've been talking to companies about this in the course of, of asking them to recruit, to participate in the study, but also in the course of explaining to them the outcomes, the one thing that I've been saying to them is, so let's understand what it means to be a middle manager, right? You're in the middle of the sandwich. That's where you are. You are, you are simultaneously being asked or invited on a nice day by people who are senior to you and people who are junior to you to do something. And everybody has needs and everybody wants something from you. And so what that means that on a good day, most middle managers are overwhelmed with a lot of requests. And a lot of these requests aren't often aligned with what they feel um, their goals are. And so what becomes really important to motivating middle managers is to help them to understand how engaging in diversity inclusion work will also help them to accomplish what they are trying to accomplish. And for middle, many middle managers, that is having a team that is able to perform well according to the standards that are set forth in the organization because that's what middle managers care about is their specific team and their specific projects and they want to know how all this diversity and inclusion talk is going to help improve that particular environment. So the motivation, even though we hope somewhere in their hearts the ethical moral reasons for it emerge and take root, um, we also need to be sensitive that middle managers are people who are really sandwiched. They are overwhelmed and they have to make day-to-day -day decisions about what is going to keep as many people on either side of them as happy and productive as possible. And if we can connect the dots between these diversity and, and inclusion efforts and how it actually advances those goals, they're more likely to adopt them and adapt them. Right. That... Middle, managers, middle managers are people too. They want what we all want. And sometimes we forget that they are human um, and that they are struggling with the same sets of issues that we're all struggling with. And so I think, you know, we use this word allies quite a bit. Um, the more that we can think of ourselves as being allies to middle managers and helping them to do their jobs better, I think the more we will see middle managers actually willing to take on the diversity inclusion work because they feel that it is important. So talk, talk to me more about that word of being an ally and the different forms that it can take and particularly the forms that it takes in formal corporate initiatives. Yeah, so in, in the course of my diversity class, I, I've, I've developed a framework and I call, I call it LEAP. Uh, one of the things that I've learned very quickly is even as an academic, you know, I can spend a lot of time in the abstract and I can just discuss things for hours upon hours, but usually what the students ask me and usually what corporations that I work with ask me is, okay, so what do you want me to do tomorrow? And so I have found for me, and I also share this when I advise companies, is give people a word that tells them what you, what you want them to do. And, and so my word for allyship is LEAP. And each letter of, of the word LEAP stands for something important. So for example, L is looking and listening, E is engaging, A is asking, and P is providing. And each of those concepts to me, it speaks to something specific. And I contextualize it around the situation. So for example, I'm writing up a piece right now that's about how do you LEAP when it comes to race? 
in the workplace? How can we practice allyship, be good allies for racial justice using this framework of LEAP? Um, and so that becomes really important is, um, I think the, the concept behind LEAP for me is about um, making sure that we can all recognize that we all don't know everything, even though we are smart humans. And so the, uh, the looking and the listening of LEAP is really just trying to understand trying to notice what's happening around you and seeking out opportunities to become educated. The engage is around how do we take advantage of, of different contexts, whether it's a webinar, whether it's an employee resource group meeting, whether it's a formal uh, town hall that we're having to connect. The A asking is around how do we practice inquiry? We were talking earlier around, um, we're, we're so good at talking and making assumptions about what we think people need. Um, and what we think uh, would make the situation better, but sometimes just asking uh, shows that you actually value uh, what they have to say and who they are. And then the P in LEAP is providing support and advice. Sometimes that's the easy part, saying, here's what I think you should do. Um, what might be harder to provide is an opportunity. If somebody's saying, I feel like there's inequity here, um, for you to be the person who says, well, actually, I think that you'd be good, or I'm, I'm willing to nominate you for this opportunity if it's something that you're interested in. And then the really hard part of the P part of LEAP is uh, speaking up against uh, situations of bias and racism and sexism and homophobia. So when those instances happen in the workplace, how do you become an ally in that way? So it sounds like LEAP in, at its heart is about bringing curiosity, some compassion, and some courage to the table to learn from the people that we work with, uh, to understand their experiences, and to um, not just witness them, but feel them understand what it's like to have those experiences and try and help advocate on their behalf where we can. It's like bringing and a whole heart to the table. It is. And I will tell you that when I run this exercise in different settings in the classroom, but also in corporate settings, I talk about how we can all be an ally, how we can all leap for one another, because sometimes this feels very unidirectional. And I think that that's what people struggle with. I just talked about middle managers. It's, we're telling them that they must be allies, but who's being an ally to the middle manager? And so this notion of mutuality and reciprocity is also built into my leap framework. Uh, when people feel like their needs are being responded to, that somebody's being an ally for them, research shows that they're more likely to be an ally for someone else. So that becomes very important as we're having this conversation about relationship building and allyship. So by embracing LEAP, you also can start a chain reaction of a, a kind of cultural ch shift that happens within the organization because others will follow the model that you set. Right. Barbara Fredrickson, who is a scholar, uh, talks a lot about uh, positive emotions, but she talks about the positive spiraling effects of anything emotional, but also of behavior, is the more that we see good things happening, the more good things that will happen. Now there's also a negative spiral, right? Uh, we, we've seen that a lot. <laughs> we've seen lots of that. <laughs> we see lots of that, but uh, you know, for the moment, LEAP <laughs> for all intents and purposes designed to um, address the positive spiraling nature of, of good allyship behavior. So, Steph, I want to invert this for a second and see if we can also create a little positive contagion in the other direction and talk about where it's complicated. Before you were, we were talking about that dynamic where um, a DNI initiative, a value statement, a promise of progress comes from the top down, and middle managers are caught. Um, having to make it real, but not necessarily connected to it, on board with it, feeling empowered. What about when the inverse is happening? 
when there isn't a statement coming from senior leadership, despite the fact that, you know, we say culture starts from the top and you have caring, compassionate, courageous people who are in the middle of the organization who want to start to affect change. What are SMART's first steps for them to take? So when I teach in my course, the module on leading change, theories of change, what I say to them is, you know, every academic or practitioner model that you will find on leading change today will say start at the top. And I say that's actually not where most change starts, if you don't understand. <laughs> it actually starts at the bottom. It's people who are very frustrated, who form their own ground level initiatives and have been trying for months, for years, for decades to make change happen in the company uh, without a lot of success. And so once it finally gets to the top, i.e. these great corporate statements, it's usually because someone at the top decided that they were going to adopt this as their personal initiative. So most change initiatives, especially diversity and inclusion, often starts in the bottom or at the middle and eventually makes its way to the top. Now that becomes important, right? Because that's the person who allocates resources and has to keep it going long after other people have left the company. Um, and so... I would say, you know, for people who don't have as much power and authority in the organization, keep it going, right? You have to form and you have to come up with um, a platform, uh, create spaces in many companies today that often takes the form of, a, of an employee resource group, uh, can be an interest group. I've talked to some companies recently where people have formed these groups of employees who are interested in talking about race or gender or LGBT community issues, and they form informally. And then eventually mm -hmm. someone in the company decides to put a stamp of approval on them. But they've decided in the course of their their informal organizing to talk to reach out to someone with more power and authority and say here are the things that we think need to be brought to the table and in many companies that has gone on for so long and, and i will tell you this is why when i see these statements and, and people are very cynical about them and i say yes you have every right to be cynical i will say i get very excited because i know that behind many of these companies are people who have been trying to push these issues for decades and have gotten nowhere. And there are people at the bottom and there are people in the middle. And so for me, I get excited. I'm like, yay, a statement came out. Because it's like finally someone at the top of the organization decided to make this a priority. Which, and we've both seen this where when that person at the top of the organization makes it a priority, it is often a byproduct of those brave voices that were piping up along the way to say that this matters. And whether it's that there was a critical moment or a particularly effective voice that got to them, once it's in the once that corporate leader puts that ball into motion, then significant change can happen. Yeah, so I'm going to use our own institution for better or for worse as an example of this, because typically in the past, Wharton has not weighed in on these matters. We did not see statements coming out of the dean's office around all these issues. And our dean, mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Garrett, our outgoing dean, put out a very solid statement, uh, if I might add, um, to address these issues of racism, named Black and African Americans as being uh, affected talked about uh, the, the people who had been killed, um, specifically by name. And after that went out, I cannot tell you how many emails I've gotten from all the various departments at Wharton giving their own statements. And I just know that he needed to put out a statement from Wharton in order for everybody to feel 
like they could do the same. And so that's what's also exciting is, is sometimes somebody's got to lead. Somebody always yes. has to lead, but when somebody leads and everybody else follows, it becomes a lot easier for the next person. This taps into what we were talking about in, at the beginning of the last half hour of it is frightening for people to open up the conversation about race and to do it in a public way. And so in addition to needing leaders to um, sanction, endorse, push for um, programs, resources, accountability. It's also that visible leadership that says, this is important and I'm going to do this publicly and I encourage you to do the same. Um, otherwise, they don't know where True North is. Right, absolutely. And I will say that, you know, I've talked about why this conversation is uncomfortable for many people. I've, I've talked to many white people, especially white men, about this conversation, about having a conversation about race. I've talked to people who are the fig have been in charge of, you know, billions of dollars and have made really complex decisions that affect everyone's lives and, and they're scared of talking about race. And it is you know, because we're going to have to talk about slavery. When we start talking about slavery, we start implicating people's selves and their families. And that is what people need to understand makes this conversation really different, is we have a very deep, dark past in this world, and especially the U.S., around slavery. And when we talk about race, it's, you, you can't stop talking about that. And when you think about this, for the, if you think about the average CEO being in his or her 50s, we really, the Civil Rights Act just passed in 1964. I mean, that is not that long ago. So many of them grew up under conditions of segregation. So they might have thought one way of being was okay. And now all of a sudden we're trying to tell them everybody is, has rights. And maybe they believe that then, but we've sent these really crazy structural messages. And so I think that the more that we understand that that's where people are coming from, the easier it becomes to figure out where to start the conversation. Because kids today, I mean, perhaps mm -hmm. your daughter, you talked about the fact she's 17. She probably thinks that we're, everybody else is just not. She, you know, right? Because she grew up with a very different set of uh, structural messages and experiences where diversity was great, right? But that was not the case always. And it still is not the case everywhere. So meeting people where they are, even when we don't like it, uh, I think becomes the mantra that many of us have to observe right now. Steph, talk to me about the framework for educators race and what each of those letters stand for. Because whether or not we're in a classroom, around our own dinner table, or with our colleagues, it sounds like embracing the concept of being an educator, whether we want to educate ourselves or help to educate the people that we're with, um, it yeah. seems like a framework that would be useful for a lot of us. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's two versions of this published as of today, floating <laughs> around on the internet. One is I've now taken the, the Race for Educators framework that is published today uh, via Harvard Business Publishing Education, and I've adapted that for the middle manager audience, no surprise. And so the, the version of Race for Middle Managers is on the Knowledge at Wharton website. And so Basically, uh, as I talk in the educators, um, the educators version, I talked about my experiences coming into Wharton three years ago, teaching a diversity class, which we did not have at Wharton previously. Um, after a series of race-related events that had uh, turned 
over in, in really terrible ways. I think the experiences of people not only in America, but also on Wharton and Penn campuses. And so it, there were issues around race, again, with the killings of Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner and Michael Brown five years ago the presidential election that brought up issues of race. So all this stuff. So that's to say that we, we keep coming back to this place that made me start thinking around, okay, so, so what do we need to do differently? At the same time, um, companies are now asking more of their middle managers. Uh, and so I thought that people need some guidelines if they're even going to think about having a conversation about race. Now, there are plenty of tools out there that say when you have this conversation, what are the three bullet points that you need to tackle? Lots of stuff around the content, but I don't, I, I, my sense was that there wasn't enough out there about preparing to have these conversations. And so race, each letter stands for something. The R stands for reducing anxiety by talking about race anyway. So, you know, marquee statement, the anxiety doesn't go away if you stop talking about it. The anxiety goes away if you keep talking about it because the part of the anxiety is actually talking about it. Um, the A is accepting that anything related to race is either going to be visible or invisible. I'm a black woman. People look at me and assume what my race is. And so I have a very racialized experience, but that's not the same experience that everybody else has. It also means that I've probably talked more about race than the average person. And so I don't have a lot of discomfort in talking about race to anyone. I also teach a, a diversity conversation. But I think the reality is, is that we're going to have these different experiences of race being our own race, but also the topic of race being visible and invisible. We're trying to find that space in between where we can have a normal, healthy conversation about race that is normalized as opposed to, I think, anxiety-provoking as it often is. Steph, before you go on with what CNE represent, I, I um, want to just plumb this a little bit. So yeah. when um, I saw that language of it's visible and there's invisible, my first, mm -hmm. um, the way I made meaning of that is that if race is the color of your skin, well, that's mm -hmm. visible. And you can't interact with the world without the reality that you're a black woman being present in every experience that you have. But invisible, um, talk to me about what, where that comes into play here and what you're talking about there. Right, so there's the invisibility, I'll, I'll, I'll mention first the invisibility that I have as a black woman, but I'll also talk about the invisibility of white people's race as well. So as a black woman, my race is seen, but I may not be seen. So that's like the dehumanization of individuals who have a minority race. And so you may see my color, you may see my phenotype, but you may not actually see me. And so the invisibility of me as a human that happens when you know, sociologists talk about this as master status, right? When your master, when people define you according to what they believe is your master status, in this case, I'm often defined to as according to my race, even though I'm also often female, people typically describe me as black first before they describe me as female. When it comes to white individuals, all the research suggests that white people don't have as salient of an experience around their whiteness and often aren't talked about in terms of their white race as are individuals who are in a minority race. And so the invisibility of being typed as having a race makes it very difficult also to have a conversation about race because that not, might not be a category or an identity that even makes any meaningful sense to you. That's a great clarification and I really appreciate it. And we can, if we bring a, a heightened sensitivity to where the invisibility that I may have the privilege of experiencing, it blinds me 
to the things that are in front of me and the places where I should tune in. And that if we remember to be conscious about, about both and embrace the awkward conversation, we might be able to make some progress. Right. I think the last thing that I will say about this visibility and invisibility, I'm going to recognize that one of the things that I've found fascinating is that many of my students, even students who are black like me or brown like me, for them, their dominant identity in which they identify these days is not their racial category. So I will say that many students when, um, you know, these days, so people, I'm not even sure what year they were born in, but let's say they're in their late teens, early 20s, struggle with conversations about race because that is, has not been, they, they, aside from obviously what's been happening for the last five years, six years, and the visibility of, of, of incidences of, of police brutality and so on, um, I think for many of these students, they're first seeing or first experiencing race in a way that they didn't used to experience race. And so that's been an interesting um, experience to witness. So Steph, we only have a couple minutes left, but just briefly. So if R is reducing anxiety about talking about race, A is accepting that anything related to race is either visible or invisible. Mm -hmm. um, C, we call on internal and external allies for help. What's E? E is expect that you're gonna to need to provide some answers. And that is the hardest thing. And I think about that every time I come on shows like yours or do media work is, is we can have these very rich come to me moments of having a conversation around race, but we don't always have solutions. And so whether we provide people with frameworks like race, like LEAP, we tell them let's do a town hall, we create a structure, we need to be able to give people some skills and some frameworks, even if you have to create them yourselves. And that becomes really important if we ever wanna see progress. Well, Steph, you have given us those tools. So I encourage anyone who's listening, you can find the, the excellent report on the People Analytics website. Check out Steph on Twitter, on LinkedIn, uh, through Knowledge at Wharton. Um, Steph, thank you so much for joining me and the important and excellent work that you're doing today. If people want to find more about you, where should they go? Absolutely. Twitter is something that I'm playing with more and more today. Not entirely comfortable, but, you know, certainly uh, you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn and you can also go to my website, which is stephaniecreary.com. Thank you all so much for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and follow us on Twitter at SXMBusiness and me at Laura Zarrow. I'd also like to thank my producer, Patty Hall, Wharton alumna, Georgina Blackett, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, and my at-home tech team, Ellie Zarrow and Jeff Greenfield. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Steph, thank you for joining us. Keep up the great work. Have a good week, everybody. The British Invasion. Motel. Surf music. The Summer of Love. The 60s. A decade of change. A decade of unforgettable music. All 60s hits. Sirius XM 60s on 6. Also streaming on your phone and on Sirius XM connected devices and speakers. Here's. Here's. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.